So we're now in a section of Luke where he concentrates on Jesus' Galilean ministry. Jesus had been tempted by Satan after his baptism and returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. Satan was spent. Jesus hadn't lost a drop of power. News of him had spread fast. He taught in local synagogues. His teaching was extraordinary. It was unique. No one taught like him before. People traveled in number to hear him. He returns to his hometown in Nazareth. He gives a very brief but incredibly powerful sermon, reading from Isaiah 61, and he says, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. But the people from his hometown, despite being amazed and finding his teaching incredible, ask, Isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus was declaring to them the coming of the messianic age. He was the one anointed by the Holy Spirit. That had happened at his baptism. He was anointed then, and his father declared his pleasure in his son. The prophecy of Isaiah had been fulfilled, yet they couldn't accept that was the case. In fact, when Jesus answered the murmurings of the people by plainly telling them that that no prophet is accepted in his hometown, that others, including the Gentiles, would be open to his teaching, the puzzlement of the crowd turned to rage and they attempted to murder him. But he slipped through the crowd and he made his way to Capernaum. And Jesus does the same thing there. He teaches in the synagogue just as he did in Nazareth. And people were amazed by his words. He encountered a demon-possessed man and displayed his great power and authority by silencing the demon and commanding it to depart from the man. Even if the people were unsure who Jesus was, the demon was in no doubt. But they're not to share it. They're adversaries. They're not God's workers. And the plan to spread the news of who he was would begin to unfold very soon. The kingdom of God demonstrated that it it overcome the kingdom of evil. Jesus, by the power of his word, defeated Satan and cast out the demon. He then displays his power over sickness. Simon Peter's mother-in-law was unwell, very unwell. And Jesus, just as he had done with the demon, he rebukes the sickness. And by the power of his word, she becomes completely healed and immediately begins to prepare a meal. And the locals, no doubt, uh, hearing these, these amazing events, they bring all their sick to Jesus, and he heals them all. No matter what their disease was, it took just the touch of his hand to heal them, completely, demon possessed, physically unwell, all were healed. Now Jesus needed to move on. And despite the pleas of the people in Capernaum, he must tell others about the good news of the kingdom of God. And that Jesus had displayed his, king, his power over the kingdom of evil and of sickness. He is mighty in word and deed. And so we get to chapter 5. And I've titled it The Power of God and the Wisdom of God. And if you've been around on Sunday mornings you'll get an idea of where I've got that 
title from. And we're going to look at this first section of chapter 5 under three headings. And the first heading is instruction, verses 1 to 3. And then involvement, verses 4 to 7. And then inclination, verses 8 to 11. So firstly, instruction, verses 1 to 3. Luke tells us that Jesus was at the lake of Gennesaret. And that's another name for the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was at the west side of the lake to the, to the south of Capernaum. And a great crowd of people were surrounding him, wanting to hear what he had to say. They were pressing in. They were leaning in so they wouldn't miss a word of his teaching. I imagine them on, on tiptoes, jostling against each other, probably cupping their ears, making sure that they didn't hear, they didn't miss a thing. They could hear everything. News had traveled fast. I'm sure many of them would have, would have heard what had been going on in Capernaum. This man was powerful. He was more powerful than anyone else they'd witnessed before. His preaching throughout the region had, had an incredible effect on all that had heard him. And the people in this crowd were, were desperate not to miss this opportunity to see and hear him firsthand. Remember what Jesus read out in Nazareth in the synagogue from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus had fulfilled this prophecy. He came in the power of the Spirit preaching the good news. But the pressing in of this crowd was so overbearing that Jesus needed to find somewhere suitable to teach them from. And there were two fishing boats on the water's edge. And the fishermen had come back from an all-night fishing trip and they were washing their nets. We know from later verses that they'd had a bad night. they caught nothing at all. And Simon Peter, he's the owner of one of these boats, he obeys the instruction of Jesus and he pushed this boat out into the lake a little way so that Jesus could teach from it. The lake would have been calm. And a voice travels well over calm water. So as the crowd pressed in on the land, Jesus spoke to them from Simon Peter's boat just a short distance into the lake. Now we don't know what Jesus said, but we know exactly what it was about. He came to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God. Just like everywhere else he had been, Jesus was preaching the gospel to them, plainly and simply, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And something to keep in mind as we, as we go along is Simon Peter's conduct towards Jesus' instructions. We'll see that develop throughout the passage. And Jesus chooses his boat to teach from. Simon Peter's unquestioning in his obedience. He's previously witnessed the teaching of Jesus and seen firsthand at least one miracle when Jesus completely healed his mother-in-law from her sickness. He was more than willing to help Jesus. But Jesus was soon to test him further. So number two, involvement, verses four to seven. 
Jesus finishes teaching the crowd and he directs his attention now to Simon Peter. He's clearly aware that Simon Peter and his fellow fishermen had had a really unsuccessful night of fishing. So Jesus tells them to go out again. Go further into the lake where it's deeper. Let down your nets there and catch some fish. Now this flies in the face of all Galilean fishing wisdom. There are two glaring problems with Jesus' command. Firstly, it's the worst time to fish. During the day is the worst time to fish. The fish are much more likely to be closer to the surface at night. But during the day, they retreat to more unreachable areas. And secondly, it's the shallower water where you fish in Galilee, not the deeper water. So Simon Peter, you could have said to Jesus' instructions, he could have said something like this, I don't think you know what you're talking about. When it comes to fishing, Jesus, you're a carpenter by trade. What do you know about fishing that I don't? We went out in the best time, in the best place to catch fish, and we caught nothing. You're now telling us to go out in the wrong time, to the wrong place, and fish. It's just complete madness. It's a waste of time. Simon Peter and his fellow business partners, Andrew, his brother, James and John, they would have probably had hired hands as well. They'd have been really tired and really grumpy. They'd spent a whole night on that lake and they've had no success whatsoever. They'd just cleaned their nets, they put everything away to go home, have a bit of shut-eye, ready to go out again at night. But Simon Peter shows the level of respect he has for Jesus. And despite his massive reservations, the seeming nonsense of this command, he calls Jesus Master. And this was a very respectful way of addressing a teacher. We've already, he'd already witnessed not just the incredible teaching of Jesus, but firsthand the power Jesus had over sickness with the healing of his mother-in-law not long before. So, despite the seeming futility of this command, going against every bit of his wisdom these seasoned fishermen had, they, they knew it was, a, on the face of it, a daft idea that after their exploration of all fishing possibilities, at the peak time and peak place, at night in the shallow water, Simon Peter obeys Jesus. Nevertheless, at your word. He can't shake what he's experienced of Jesus, what he's heard him say, what he's seen him do. He's seen that he's mighty in word and deed. And despite all his doubts, he puts them aside and he obeys. Simon Peter was putting his faith in the word of Jesus. Now putting our faith in God's word can be a very hard and seemingly counterintuitive thing to do. It goes against the grain of our own wisdom sometimes, or the prevailing wisdom of the day. We believe in Jesus, but everything else is telling us to do something, something else, something other than what his word tells us to do. And it reminded me of um, a lady called Gladys Aylward. She was this famous missionary to China, and she overcame many and varied hurdles to obey God. She failed her exams in the China Inland Mission. 
She had to work a number of jobs to get the money together to be able to travel to China. And when she was eventually able to set out, all she had was a passport, a Bible, the tickets, and a really, really small amount of money. And along the way, she had to overcome difficulties on the journey because of her wars going on as she traveled through various countries. The, the distrust of the Chinese once she got there, learning the language, the loss of a fellow missionary not very long into her stint as a missionary in China. Despite this, she put her trust in God and it was proven to her over and over again that God never failed her despite the seeming futility of her position. Do we put our faith in his word? Despite the fact it may appear on the face of it completely futile. Are we willing to obey him? Listen to the words of Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts and your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. So Simon Peter obeys Jesus' word and his boat sets off to the deepest part of the lake to let down the nets. They don't have any waiting about to do. The fish are seemingly throwing themselves into the nets. And before long, the nets are so full that they can hear the net fibers tearing as they can't take the weight of the amazing haul. From spending the night chasing shadows, they've had the best ever catch at the worst possible time, at the worst possible place. And now they need help. Peter and Andrew need help from James and John. They feel both boats full of fish, so full that the boats are in danger of sinking. It was a colossal catch. I think we see here something more of the power of the Son of God. Firstly, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He knew exactly where the fish were. He knew where they were in the lake, and he knew exactly where the fishermen would let down their nets. Secondly, he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He directed that great shoal of fish to be at the right place at the right time. See, Jesus doesn't just have the power over the kingdom of evil and over sickness. He has power over the natural world as well. I think it's also a brief glimpse into restoration through Jesus. We read in Genesis 1, 28, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Jesus is restoring things back to the original creation order. It's just what we, we learn in chapter 3 when we, when we look through that lineage. It goes all the way back. He's restoring things back to as they were. The haul of fish it was lavish. It was way beyond their best ever catch. It was overflowing everything. See, Luke tells us that Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit. John's gospel tells us that Jesus was full of grace 
and truth, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they'd experienced this. See, there's no scrimping when God gives. No scrimping when God gives. It's from his fullness. This is what Jesus was showing them. This is what he's showing us tonight. Paul tells the Corinthian church that they've been enriched in him. Literally, they've been made rich in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian tonight, you've been, made, you've been enriched in him. We're rich in spiritual riches. The only riches that moth and rust that can't destroy is given to you and me from his fullness. We come to number three, inclination, verses 8 to 11. What Simon Peter had just experienced has had a massive impact on him. We know that he highly respected Jesus before, but now it's gone way past that. He falls before Jesus and he cries out, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. See, this professional fisherman who'd witnessed the miracle of the healing of his mother-in-law had now seen the power of Jesus in his very field of specialism. Jesus was, was now way more than a highly respected teacher in Simon Peter's eyes, way more. And I'm sure he's speaking on behalf of his fellow fishermen here as well. All of them were absolutely astonished in what they'd experienced. They'd witnessed something of, of Jesus' holiness. There'd been a, a slight unveiling of his awesome holiness, and Simon Peter's reaction is telling. He recognized Jesus as God. He's seen a glimpse of Jesus' deity. That famous chapter in Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the seraphim singing praises to him so powerfully that the foundations of the doorframe of the temple shook. His response was this, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. Well, he can't cope with even a, a tiny glimpse of the holiness of God. When we witness a small amount of God's holiness, we realize how unholy we are. Simon Peter was ex expressing that God just isn't like us. He's holy. He, he's, he's set apart from us. He's awesome. He's to be adored and dreaded. God is light. There is no darkness in him at all. His holiness exposes our unholiness our unworthiness, our sin. Now, in view of this, it's incredible how Jesus responds to Simon Peter's heartfelt cry. Do not be afraid. We've heard this said a few times in Luke. In chapter 1, verse 13, the angel Gabriel speaking to Zechariah. Do not be afraid. Chapter 1, verse 30, Gabriel speaking to Mary. Do not be afraid. Chapter 2, verse 10, the angel declaring to the shepherds Jesus' birth. Do not be afraid. Each time something is going to happen or has happened, God is at work. Do not be afraid. He requires you 
to obey him. Just like Zechariah, Mary, and the shepherds, do not be afraid, fishermen. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. Now that you've got a greater grasp of who Jesus is, he has a job for you. They've been changed by this encounter. They've been radically changed. And as soon as the boats arrived back at the shore, they left everything and they followed Jesus. The word that we read, forsook, it can be translated as divorce. It describes a permanent separation, a cutting of ties. So Peter, Andrew, James and John permanently separated themselves from their former lives, their former way of life. They followed Jesus. Their whole inclination had changed. Simon Peter fell before Jesus, not away from him. They could have made a big profit, I'm sure, selling that huge amount of fish that they'd caught and probably been able to live off the story of that day. And I'm sure that they would have been able to carry on in their life, you know, and, and made a little bit more money out of it. But they'd seen something of God's holiness in what they've witnessed, and they needed to obey his word. So instead of carrying on in their comfort zone and fishing on Galilee, they left their boats, their nets, their haul of fish, probably their friends, the things and the livelihood that they knew so well to follow Jesus. They were willing to leave it all behind for Jesus. They were willing to put all their resources at his disposal. They considered themselves to be unworthy in his presence. Notice something, though, that Jesus doesn't tell them to leave everything and follow him. This is the instinctive reaction of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they had now been given this responsibility of spreading the gospel net out to rescue people from death. And that required their complete commitment to Jesus. The Peter and fellow disciples would spread the net out, but only God can fill the net. In 1 Corinthians we read that Paul planted, Apollos watered, but only God caused the growth. And Peter at the day of Pentecost spread the gospel net out and he declared this, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. And God filled the net that day. Jesus knew the cost to himself when he began his ministry and he called his disciples. He knew where it would take him. And yet throughout this, his desire was and is to rescue people from death. He spoke in the synagogues the good news of the kingdom of God. He called his disciples to catch people in their gospel nets to save them from destruction. He was obedient to his Father's will. Jesus was obedient unto death 
even to death on a cross. He knew that it was his Father's will to crush him. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I've got three things for us to consider from this passage. Firstly, indifference to Jesus is not an option. The people of Nazareth, on hearing his claim of being the anointed one, they they couldn't get past his humanity. Isn't this Joseph's son? They refused to look any further than that. They rejected him. They wanted him dead. Jesus reminded them of, of God's goodness to the Gentiles. His message exposed their pride in Jewish exclusivity. Jesus was putting them at the same level as Gentiles. They needed saving just like the Gentiles did. See, pride is a stumbling block for many. Many think that they're good enough for heaven. They haven't done anything wrong enough that would throw them out, surely. Not unlike some. And when they hear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they can't accept it. They reject the message of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. I hope that's not you tonight. The message, the gospel message, is a challenging message. And we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You see, Simon Peter did two crucially important things when coming to Jesus. Firstly, he recognized his own sinfulness before a holy God. I am a sinful man, O Lord. Secondly, he recognized he couldn't save himself. He needed to turn to Jesus. He fell before Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can help us. John, in chapter 6 of his gospel, he details the desertion of many of Jesus' disciples. They couldn't handle his teaching. Pride got in the way, so they rejected him. Only 12 were left. Jesus said to the 12, You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. I think we've all experienced this as a Christian. I can remember driving to work a good few years ago now. I was uncertain whether I was a a Christian or not. And I recognized my sinfulness before a holy God and I just didn't know what to do and I can just remember I was listening to a a Stuart Townend record and a line of a song stuck to me stuck with me what can I do but give you glory Lord that was the line and I suddenly remembered what that that clicked what can I do but give you glory that's That's what I've got to do. I'm a sinful man, Lord, but I've got to give you the glory. I've got to come before you, Lord, and ask you to save me rather than reject you and be condemned. Indifference to Jesus is not an option. You'll either condemn him or you'll you'll come to him. There's no in-between. So number two, following Jesus is radical. 
Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they forsook all. They divorced themselves, separated themselves from their previous way of life. When we follow Jesus, we must leave our past behind and commit our future to him. It's a radical change. And Jesus tells us about this radical change later on in Luke 14. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, the on, all onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build and wasn't able to finish. There is a cost to committing to following Jesus. Just like a builder wanting to build a tower, if they do not calculate the costs accurately they're in danger of not completing the project if we don't understand the cost of following Jesus when we hit a bump in the road all likelihood is we'll abandon him altogether see following Jesus is radical but what can I do but give you glory Lord so finally are you willing to obey Jesus. Gladys Elwood, who I spoke about a little bit earlier, she said to a friend of hers later on in her life, I wasn't God's first choice for what I've done in China. I don't know who it was. It must have been a man, a well-educated man. I don't know what happened. Perhaps he died. Perhaps he wasn't willing. And God looked down and saw Gladys Aylward, and God said, well, she's willing when we obey Jesus, we'll probably be taken out of our comfort zone. We will be taken out of our comfort zone. We'll face things that completely overwhelm us. But for the fact that God is with us. I mean, Josh spoke to us this morning about um, Paul's example in 1 Corinthians 4. He set this incredible example. is the epitome of a humble servant carrying out the responsibility God had given him him are we willing to obey God whatever our responsibility is that we've been given are we willing to do that Psalm 73 it ends by giving us a, a picture of obedience I think who do I have in heaven but you and I desire nothing on earth but you my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all you do. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word, Lord. We pray that everyone here now would take up the challenge to obey you in everything that they do. Help us to, to walk a walk that is um, close to you, Lord, and that we're able to say that we're, we're servants of you and that we're bearing the responsibility that you've given us, Lord, whatever it may be, whether it seems small 
or whether it seems a great responsibility, Lord. Help each one of us to be able to carry out the task we've been given for your glory. Amen. And we're going to sing, finally, in heavenly love abiding. my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, your ways, my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Amen.